Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dander and Shorley. And as always, during the show, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. Now, first up in what looks like a much-needed positive piece of news for the A-League, the Sydney Morning Herald's Vince Regari reported this week that the Newcastle Jets' three-year search for a new owner is nearing an end with an American consortium leading the race to purchase the cash-strapped A-League club. We'll have a chat to Vince to get into the meat of that story and a few other bits of football news that have been bouncing around during the week. Of course, we'll have all the Matildas and Socceroos news with Willem and this week, Chelsea won their first Club World Cup title with a 2-1 win over Brazilian side Palmeiras after extra time in Abu Dhabi when Kai Havertz converted from the penalty spot to seal victory for Thomas Tuchel's side. Chelsea have now won every possible trophy under owner Roman Abramovich. So we'll be joined by the Athletics man on the Chelsea beat, Liam Toomey, to discuss all of that and, of course, our extended stoppage time with Derek to talk about all the other news that we haven't gotten to by that point. But... Michael Edgley, welcome home. You're in Australia. Thank you, Rob. I'm coming to you from the fantastic studio, Damien Toto Broadcasting Studio. It's just a, it's just a magnificent uh, place. This, and I'm and I'm very happy to be back in Melbourne. But 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 can I say when I arrived in Melbourne on Sunday night, and yes, last night I went out to. This is obviously th- recording the show on Thursday, Rob, as you know. But uh, mm-hmm. Wednesday night I went to see Melbourne Victory and Sydney FC in the. I laid out the red wins. carpet for you at the airport, though, didn't they? They did. They did. But at the airport, can I just can I just say, <laughs> as I as I drove. Uh, from the airport back to my home, and then as I drove back from Caroline Springs through Melbourne, just Rob, a simple question to you, Melburnians who've been here for the last four: What's happened to all the Melburnians? Does anyone live here anymore? The place is well, like a ghost town. What is no, what is going on down here? No, I was in the city today, and uh, and I live, uh, you know, on the sort of the edges of the city. Uh, you live in Turak, Be honest. No, 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 I live in Hawthorne East, so uh, I don't mind declaring that. So uh, that is actually where I live, in case you've been wondering, having listened to this podcast and it just rants for so long. But it took me 15 minutes to drive to the Docklands today. Not much happening, is there? No, fair dinkum, this place is a ghost town. But it wasn't a ghost town at Caroline Springs last night. I enjoyed going to the A-League women's, uh, the the best game of the season so far, uh, Sydney FC title contenders and Melbourne victory, trying to cobble together an assault on Sydney FC. They they came from two goals down, Willem, to have a draw, and it was a good little atmosphere out at Caroline Springs, George Cross, the old famous Sunshine George Cross new facility. It was a good night. I really enjoyed it, and you've got some news. I do, Michael. I just want to say, Rob, before we get there, that I'm also at the studios of Damien Tato, and Michael Edgley is back in Melbourne. He's beaming. He's got his yellow top on because he's off to see the Burgers in the opening match of the NPL after this one. How excited are you to see your Heidelberg boys go around again? I love my Burgers. Obviously, you know, they're very close to my heart, having had such a long involvement with the club. But can I say that um, we're predicting off-air, weren't we, Willem, whether there'd be more people at South Melbourne versus Heidelberg than at... uh, Western Sydney Wanderers last night. It was grim. Melbourne victory, Western Sydney. Another midweek A-League match. The season's really sort of ground to a bit of a halt, Rob. We'll get into that later. But for now, as you said, good news off the top, and that is that the Newcastle Jets could be under new ownership by season's end with an American consortium in discussions with the APL after touring the club last month. 
Jordan Gardner and Brett Johnson have been looking to buy into Australian football for some time. They backed the Gold Coast 2018 licence bid, then looked to buy the Mariners and move them last year. The pair are either co-owners or shareholders of Ipswich Town, Swansea City, Helsingor and Phoenix Rising. So we will break this down with Vince a little bit later on. They're not the only players. There's another consortium interested, which is always good for competitive demand. And Michael, hopefully we can end this ridiculous situation when we've had three rival clubs owning the Jets for the last 18 months or so. Yeah, it's not an, uh, not an uncommon scenario in professional sport in a league that has a closed-door policy that uh, other clubs would own a club that was in, con- in uh, a bit of financial trouble like the Jets. This is a good news story for Australian football. Uh, a lot of people in the you know professional sporting club environment thinks, think the A-League clubs are undervalued. This would The interest in Newcastle Jets would suggest it's the case. And obviously Adelaide United is also subject to a potential takeover. So that is all good news because it means that some people in the market think these clubs are undervalued as to what they might be worth in the future, maybe one or two or three broadcast deals from now. So I think it's only good news. We want Newcastle Jets. It's a great footballing region of Australia. We want them up and going. We want them filling the stands uh, up, up there at that fantastic stadium and, and everybody enjoying a successful Newcastle in the A-League. On to the A-League women's calls to professionalise the league uh, the league rather this week have grown into a bit of a chorus. Adelaide United's Fiona Wirtz bagged five goals in their win over Brisbane only to quickly return to Adelaide to work at McDonald's the following day. Four days later, Newcastle Jets goalkeeper Georgia Boric made the decision to leave the club and basically put her career on hold mid-season due to work commitments outside of the game. Uh, Michael, you mentioned last week that we might be moving towards a 20-game home and away season with an 11th club in. So, I mean, there are calls and it's an easy thing to say, professionalise the league. But what does it take and where does that money come from? Is it from Silver Lake? Does the game have it already or are they going to have to raise more capital? How does that happen? I think it comes from Silver Lake if they are going to expand the league. Um, that means that the, there's already a provision in the collective bargaining agreement to pro rata the increase in salary for the players. But, yeah, look, you know, the, at the moment the A-League women's is a semi-professional uh, program. Most of the players have jobs. A good example was, was that the Sydney FC team flew to Melbourne on Tuesday evening, had Wednesday in Melbourne, played Wednesday evening against Melbourne Victory. They play... Also in Melbourne against Melbourne City on Sunday, they couldn't stay down. They had to return to Sydney early on Thursday morning because players needed to go to their day jobs. So that's a good example of, um, you know, they obviously should have stayed down and prepared for their second game in Melbourne in three in four days to uh, take advantage of not having to travel and the impact on the performance. However, they've got jobs, they've got... And, and that's the, that is the reality of the market we're in at the moment. The calls for fully professionalised women's A-League football are right, Uh, they are worthy, Um, however, uh, there is a little way to go. And what is the amount of money that is going to convince these players to give up their careers and just focus full-time on football? Uh, It's got to be 22 rounds, it's probably got to be some cup games as well, Um, and it's probably got to be somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000. So that's my punt at it, let's see what happens over the next uh, little while. Football Australia has confirmed a bid for the 2034 Men's FIFA World Cup is in its embryonic stage and that it will use next year's Women's World Cup as a springboard for that bid. 
The Herald Sun in Melbourne on Thursday touted the MCG could be in line for the final despite Victoria not securing any matches from the quarterfinals onwards of next year's women's edition. So it would certainly take a bit of a shift in mentality from the Victorian government. Uh, the Victorian government is reportedly seeking a top-tier global sporting event to rival Brisbane's hosting of the 2034 Olympics. Uh, Rob, it was front page in the Herald Sun in Melbourne on Thursday, but as you look into the article, there wasn't much that we didn't already know. We already know that... Uh, Football Australia are looking at that 2034 Men's World Cup. So I'll give you first right of reply on this one. Yeah, look, um, I know that article didn't impress any of us. And obviously the first thing that, that leaps out at you is the fact that the MCG is an oval stadium. And uh, you couldn't imagine, and I know it has got a lot to add to this, uh, so I won't uh, go into this particular point about oval stadiums in too much detail. But it, it's sort of smacked to me like a state government positive piece of news sort of press release scenario or leak to a favoured journal because there, there were no mentions of Football Australia. In fact, it, Football Australia was referred to by their old name, Football Federation of Australia. So whoever was briefing the story uh, uh, set the uh, MCG up Oval Stadium for a rectangular final and and calls the peak body by their wrong name. I suggest um, that this was just a, well, slow news day, guys. Rob, what's the old saying? You should never believe everything you read in the newspaper. Well, uh, Didn't I ever tell you that story? One of my old police sergeants when I was a young bloke said, mate, there's two things you can believe in the newspaper, the date and the price, and everything else is up for grabs. <laughs> well, this one's a good example. So um, the journalist obviously um, wasn't aware that FIFA had already made a decision at Exco level and had that ratified by the Congress that there'll be no World Cup finals played on a, on an oval stadium, and that is uh, been uh, the reason why the Victorians have missed out on getting any of the women's World Cup finals because they don't have a rectangular stadium with enough capacity, and the MCG and Docklands is uh, are not appropriate because they are ovals. So that is the reality of the situation. Somebody might want to tell the uh, Herald Sun that. Yeah, I think that might be the case. I mean, you look at the quality of stadium that hosted the Super Bowl throughout the week, and there'll be. You know, the States, a couple, along with a couple of other countries, will be hosting the 2026 World Cup. Uh, and you then look at the state of Marvel with the seats in. That's a rectangle venue, but that's where we're at here in Melbourne. And but that's just the, even with a rectangular venue, the capacity comes down to a point where it's yeah. too too low for FIFA. That's yeah. what I'm saying. No, we're yeah. a long, long, long way back here in Melbourne from hosting the World Cup final. No one Good. lives here anyway. I've, I've driven through the city two nights in a row. Nobody lives here. So uh, rest of Australia, um, there's probably some decent places to live in Melbourne if you want to come down and check out Melbourne. There's plenty of space. There's there's no one in the city. There's no one in the restaurants. So you won't have a problem getting a coffee. You won't have a problem getting a meal, Rob. Champions League knockout stages. Rob, they're in full swing with Man City laying down a marker with a 5-0 first leg win away to Sporting Lisbon. Elsewhere, Kylian Mbappe scored a late winner for PSG to edge Real Madrid. Bayern Munich were held to a draw by Salzburg. And Liverpool left it late, but ultimately got up 2-0 over Inter Milan. And that's an important result, Rob. We'll, uh, we'll welcome in Derek at the back end of the show to break all these matches down in detail. But I know that we couldn't have you sitting there thinking on Liverpool <laughs> for the entire show. So I think Inter probably played the better football. But 2-0 away from home. Away goals aren't a factor anymore but still an important result yeah that point you make about away goals not being a factor for the first time is is a big one so any win by a couple of goals away from home is always going to be a massive advantage but you're right um, Inter they had the, the better of uh, of most of that match at the San Siro and uh, and it looked like Liverpool would have been happy to get away with the goalless draw in that first league but uh, but after you know Robbie Firmino's uh, uh, goal that um, sort of put 
injury on the back foot, obviously. They tried to chase the draw and uh, it left uh, them exposed for, for Mo Salah, adding that sort of late deflected one. So, yes, those of us who are uh, red, uh, red through and through were very pleased with that result. Uh, and uh, hopefully it will augur good news for uh, the rest of the Champions League competition. Europa League and Europa Conference League also returned from Friday and it's fortunate that someone told Leicester boss Brendan Rodgers because he didn't even know they were in it. The Foxes begin a two-legged tie against Randers of Denmark and although Rodgers didn't know what the Conference League was when they qualified in December, he's now said that they embrace it and that they want to win it, as you would. A few other interesting ties across the divisions in the Europa League. Barcelona and Napoli in the uh, in the Europa. Barca for the first time since about 2004 outside of the very top tier of European club competition. And Matty Ryan and Real Sociedad will be playing RB Leipzig. Matt hasn't played a lot, but when he has played, it has been in the Europa League, so hopefully he can crack uh, a match there. And Michael, down in the Conference League, the big ticket item from an Australian perspective is, of course, Ange and Celtic and Tommy Rogic against Norwegian champions Bodo Glimt. A big chance to uh, to progress here into the latter stages. You would think so. So uh, go Celtic and Tommy. Had a final one, Rob. Uh, the plight of Guangzhou Evergrande and Chinese football we know about. Uh, we had Michael Church on from the Asian game a couple of months ago now, uh, and it's gotten a little bit grimmer over the past week. They've released all five of their naturalised Brazilian players who were really a sort of stable, uh, a staple of how strong the club was. So Elkerson, Ricardo Goulart, Alan Cavalho, Fernando Henrique and Aloisio uh, have all been released. Uh, we know that they're facing liquidity. So whatever sort of uh, Guangzhou Evergrande makes it to the line in April when the Chinese Super League starts, it's going to be greatly reduced, uh, greatly reduced from what they have been over the past couple of seasons. Three of those yeah, players sure. played against the Socceroos in the UAE World Cup qualifier when we played China there. So I wish this had happened, buddy, three weeks, yeah, three so. months ago, so they didn't play again because they one of them scored a goal. All right, Willem Edge, thanks. Great start. Great to have you back in the studio. Lots of news to talk to Vince Regari about the. Chief of them being the story about Newcastle. Uh, Edge, I know you've got a few other bits and pieces you want to catch up on in the domestic game now that you're back, so stick around. Vince Rigari from the Sydney Morning Herald next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box and... We mentioned off the top of the show that there was a good piece of news in the A-League world this week with the Sydney Morning Herald's Vince Regari and Don Bossi reporting that the Newcastle Jets' three-year search for a new owner is nearing an end with an American consortium leading the race. They're one of two consortiums actually bidding for the Cash Strap Club. We'll uh, look forward to how that all plays out, but what we are looking forward to is having a chat to Vince, who is on the line now. How are you, Vince? G'day, guys. Really well. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. But uh, but pleased to see this piece of news. Uh, the Newcastle Jets, you know, they uh, they you know Arthur Pappas doing so much good work on the field, but uh, some great news off it. Yeah, I mean, uh, no one likes the situation they're in right now in terms of them being owned by several other club owners. It's weird. It's against the rules of I think FIFA and the AFC. So they've obviously got a bit of a work around there. But it's not what you want, especially for a place like Newcastle, which is just like. For me, one of the most, like the, the potential in that place for football, really in terms of a domestic club has never been fully realised. We've had sort of glimpses of what it could be at times and then that's always been followed by another shonky owner who doesn't pay the bills or some other disaster that's popped up. But um, look, who's who's to say these guys are the, are the, are the perfect owners, the ones who are, who are likely to come in that we've reported about? But um, from, from all indications, and I've been aware of... Um, Brett and Jordan for a while and their interest in the A-League, like they seem to 
um, have, a, have a bit of a shrewd strategy about them. They understand the game. They understand, you know, how, how to make money out of the players being traded overseas and transferred and all that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, they, they seem to be switched on uh, in, in, in a good way and seem like the kind of owners that the A-League should be, you know, bringing in more of, in my opinion. Vince, um, a lot of people in the football community at the are now are lamenting uh, how the APL is going. Uh, you know, obviously because of COVID, we've had some poor crowds. MacArthur, Western United, Melbourne City. From time to time, we've had challenges with you know poor old Wellington not being able to play in New Zealand, having to play behind closed doors. Believe it or not. But I think a lot of people are losing sight of um, a lot of outside interest in football, especially the businesses, the people who have the business of owning and selling football clubs. They do think the A-League clubs are undervalued. Do you think this sort of franks that opinion that there are some international suitors that are circling because some of our clubs might be undervalued on a, in a global context? It's hard to say without really knowing how many other owners are out there circling, wanting in. Like these guys I know have been knocking on the door for for really a number of years. Like these these were the guys who had the money um, for the Gold Coast United bid during the last round of expansion, which obviously didn't get up, but they were prepared to, to do that, you know. So these guys have been in the frame for a while. I don't really know, like I'd be guessing if I was to say something about how many other owners are out there who are interested. Um, but it, you're right, it seems to be the case that there's on a number of levels in terms of the football side, the business side of football, sorry, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of interest outside of Australia. Sometimes it even feels like more of it outside of Australia than within Australia, and the challenge is how do you how do you unlock that? How do you you know get you know the the, the perception out there that we're undervalued? Like it feels sometimes like I went to the I covered the game last night, Wanderers versus Melbourne Victory, and I'm I'm, I'm sitting there and, and looking at a football game that was pretty boring in front of a pretty empty stadium, and I'm thinking this is undervalued. Like some. <laughs> It's 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 very it's very funny sometimes to me, but it's it, it's it's true. Like there's more. The A League is nowhere near its potential right now, um, and sometimes I guess with with nights like last night, and, and you know how it is in Australian football, it, it doesn't take much for you to get the feeling that the sky's falling in and doom is just around the corner. But the reality is there is a bit of blue sky if we can just get the right people in the right jobs and the right investors putting the you know good amounts of money into the right areas. The thing can grow. Other people can see it. It's hard to see that sometimes from our vantage point here, um, but it's certainly the case. And and look, I don't know if these guys are going to come in and, and splash money around in Newcastle, like just judging by their previous, you know, their involvements in other clubs. I don't know if that's their go. Um, what they seem to be is is solid. Like there won't be any question about um, rent or, you know, other things, pay not being missed every month and that sort of stuff. So... Uh, and, and they seem to obviously have a good network of contacts around the world in, in various clubs in different countries. And uh, one of these guys, Jordan Gardner, is a, is a chairman of, of the team that's top of the, um, I think it's the Danish second division, Helsingor, I think is, is the name of the club. And they've got a few Kiwis there. And these, these are Kiwi players, I'm pretty sure, who they've just scooped up from New Zealand. Noticed that these players were sort of decent quality, could do a job at some level in Europe, undervalued, put them in a put them in a um, Danish team, the top of the table, the transfer value of those players is probably going to skyrocket now, especially if they get into the top tier next year. So they understand how it works. And I feel like sometimes in Australia, at our clubs at the moment, or in the past, definitely, there's there's not really an understanding of how to play that game. And um, especially for a place like Newcastle, you know, like uh, a production line of talent should be coming out of there. And you put the right owners in place. 
and you'd like to hope that 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 talent line can be unlocked for the good of the Socceroos and the Matildas. Man. Well, Newcastle deserves some good owners because they've had some crap ones, to be honest, haven't they? <laughs> they've, had, they've had the bloke from China who just went absolutely missing, Martin Lee. Uh, poor old Martin, obviously, um, COVID destroyed his uh, business and the sanctions that were put in place. But And before that, uh, Tinkler. So let's hope um, the standards are risen uh, uh, for Newcastle fans who are craving security and uh, a bit of stability because, as you said, Vince, the region is a football region and its, its potential has never really been realised. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm passionate about, like, regional areas like Newcastle, you know. Like, it's, you know, a lot of the power base in Australian soccer has always been in the big cities, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide to a lesser extent. But, like, places like Newcastle, they're so special, you know. Like, the history that there goes back, you know, a century plus. Newcastle um, KB. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And the problem is... Um, the, the, putting a club there for a national league has never really worked out consistently, and it doesn't mean it, it's it's not going to work if you don't have the right things in place, you know. And it's just it would it would really be to the, to the massive detriment of the whole game if we didn't have a team in Newcastle, which is why I'm so glad that the other owners put their hand in their pocket um, when the club was looked like it was going to fall over to keep them alive. Um, and then, look, they didn't do it fully altruistically because they're going to sell this license. I don't know how much for, but I would imagine the owners that have, um, you know, helped keep this club alive during this interim period will have some sort of return on that investment, and, and, and rightfully so, because this is a club that, that, that can be big. Like, you know, in a non-COVID world, you think about Newcastle at their best, the crowds that they could attract, you know, like they're... They, they can have crowds that are up there with your Sydney FCs and your Melbourne Victories and stuff, you know, for the right sort of games if they're playing well. It's just hard to think of that sometimes given the Jets that we've known in more recent years, you know. Vince, the last little bit of your copy with Dom said that Adelaide United could also be up for a, an ownership change. Before we get on to Ross Peligra, I wanted to ask you about the current outgoing ownership. Uh, Pete Vanderpoel, in some ways, he's maybe been Australia's equivalent of silent Stan Kroenke at Arsenal. We've never really heard from him and we hear that he fronts this consortium of, of Dutch owners. What sort of, of ownership and legacy do you think they've had? Uh, because certainly in a public-facing manner, Adelaide seems to be a pretty strong club. They've got a clear identity, purpose with the way they use their sort of young South Australians and pick up the odd trophy, but there's still sort of criticism around the outgoing owners. How have you seen it? Yeah, I, I credit most of that to guys like Bruce Jutte, to be honest, rather than Pete Vanderpoel. Like, um, he's like, where's Wally uh, Pete Vanderpoel? Is he, how many times has he been in Australia? It's bizarre. Like, I've, I've honestly, I've never had a conversation with the guy. Yep. Uh, none of us know who actually owns the club. That is weird. I don't care how it is many times they try and spin it differently. It's bizarre. It's actually, I think it's kind of disrespectful to fans. Like, it's it's dumb and it shouldn't happen. And this club, look, they've done some good things in recent times. And my heart sort of belongs to Adelaide United in a way. You know, I grew up supporting that club. That's where I'm from. But they haven't had heaps of money washing around that joint for a while either. They've, it seems like Pete and his, uh, his invisible consortium has been, have been putting in the bare minimum to keep the lights on. And it's it's basically to the credit of guys like Bruce, who in the past have used that that fantastic talent um, coming out of South Australia in the transfer market to bring in more money. And you just wonder if that's what Bruce did on a shoestring budget with those. Like, imagine what new owners with serious investment could do in a place like Adelaide, which you know, let's not forget is is it's been tough watching Adelaide games this year on the TV because. It's that that opposite stand is, is closed for those renovations, yeah. and Hindmarsh doesn't have that same feel. But it's only a matter of time till that renovation is done. 
you've got a you know a, a lot nicer high marsh, I think, with a few more seats in it. Uh, it's going to feel fresh and different, and new, and with the right owners, like why can't Adelaide, you know, at least half fill that stadium every every week, if not more. Like if it's a twenty thousand seater, Adelaide is a club that should be getting ten thousand every week, no problems. And it having owners who are completely invisible is just it's it's hard to have faith in a club like that if you're a fan, in my opinion. Uh, we might hopefully have a little bit more visibility from Ross Pelligra if he is, in fact, the man to come in. He's been throwing down some serious cash in the area. He took up the uh, the ABL licence for the Adelaide Bite and he's turned them into the Adelaide Giants and now he's looking to uh, to buy, uh, to build a new stadium for them. Uh, he's made his wealth through property development. So it is of your understanding that he will be the man to come in and what can you tell us of him? It, it seems that way. Uh, I, I can't tell you heaps more other than what was in the story because Dom sort of brought that, brought that to the table. And I, I do know Channel 10 have reported on, on him as well. They did an interview with him a few few weeks back. That was circulating on social media. Um, the Polygra name is sort of everywhere in Adelaide at the moment. He is very active in development, is, is Ross Polygra. Um, uh, I, I do cock an eyebrow a little bit when I look at him buying the baseball team and, and the and the 36ers stadium. It's a bit like... You know, you mentioned a certain Newcastle Jets ex-owner earlier who bought up heaps of football clubs in the area and look how that turned out. It's a bit of a red flag for me. I don't understand why you would buy a baseball team in Australia right now with all due respect to baseball. So I hope that this isn't just some sort of vanity ploy from Ross Poligra because uh, Adelaide needs good, strong owners. The A-League is better with a good, strong Adelaide. And Ross Poligra, look, he's been around football for a little bit as well. He was the guy who was putting the money behind the South Melbourne bid um, during the last round of expansion as well. And I'm pretty sure he's still a sponsor of South Melbourne. So I don't, to, to talk about this one and the, and the jet situation, I'm not sure what these ownership changes, if they go through, mean for those um, failed bids from the past, from Gold Coast and from South Melbourne. Probably nothing good for Gold Coast, I wouldn't have thought. You can't own two clubs at once, unless you're, unless you're saving the jets like these blokes have done in the last few years. But um, And South Melbourne, look, I'm sure there's more more money washing around in that community too. But these, these guys have been around the place for a while. They understand what the league is. They've been interested for a, for a period of time. So you'd like to think that uh, the APL have checked out their bona fides and that this is going to work out well for all concerned. And just a final one, Vince, on a uh, personal perspective. Stan Sport, a new venture for you personally. You've been uh, hosting the show with Bozza and Foz and uh, this week made headlines with a brilliant interview with Ange Postacoglu. How was that to, uh, to be in the centre of that in what was the public uh, breaking of bread between Ange and Foz? Yeah, it was unbelievable. I still don't even know what I'm doing on there, but it seems to be going okay. <laughs> absolute, it's an absolute honour to sit on a couch alongside Bozzer and Bozzer and an even greater honour to have Ange on. Um, and it was just super cool to be part of that moment, even if I was just sitting there as a bystander, you know, like to see Foz and, and – like I, I remember that argument back in the day on SBS and I was just a uni student at that time watching that and thinking, what the hell is going on here? And to, like – yeah, it's crazy to think that that's happened to me. But um, I'm very, very grateful for it. And I guess it's inspiration for any bold fat blokes out there that you too can uh, perhaps uh, one day get your mug on TV. No, nah, mate. Well, well you, you represent every single one of us, mate. You represent the man on the street, the bloke that's the fan but who writes some bloody brilliant stuff for the Sydney Morning Herald, mate. So well done you. And your stripes, mate. You deserve to be there. It was great stuff. Um, thanks again for, for joining us for, for a yarn, mate. Um, and stay well and uh, we'll get you back on the, the show there's, next time. There's some, uh, some good stuff to talk about in the alley. Thanks very much, guys. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
great, the great Vince Gregari, and he certainly sells himself short because uh, we all love uh, reading Vince's work with the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, and of more recent times his, his work on Stan. So, okay, stick around. Willem and Edge and I will talk a little bit more about the Socceroos and Matildas next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box, all the Socceroos and Matildas news coming up with Willem in just a moment. But before we talk about all of that, you know, you'll always get the biggest brands at the lowest prices. We're at Willem. Bup, bup. Chemist Warehouse. Exactly. And this week, as Michael chimes in with the harmonies, we've been missing since he's been away. Not all the time. He does come in, but they're a little bit easier to get involved from a close range. They have taken at Chemist Warehouse a massive 40% off the Wagner Vitamins range. Now's the time to get into Chemist Warehouse. It includes Wagner High Strength Zinc, 120 tablets for just $5.99. Wagner Meta B, 100 capsules, just $9.59. We all need that B vitamin. Wagner Men's, Women's, or 50 plus Multivite, 100 capsules, just $10.79. That is a steal. Wagner Sleep Well. You're not sleeping well, Edge. You're traveling. You've got to get back into your sleep patterns. 100 capsules for $13.99. And Wagner Vegan Evening Primrose Oil, 60 capsules, just $11.39. Sale excludes Wagner Professional. You'll find these and more specials in store and online. Where are gentlemen? Chemist Warehouse, Rob. Ka-ching. Where the great savings are every single day. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Rob, we're nearing 10 months until the Qatar World Cup, would you believe? For so long it's been just a sort of distant future, but uh, we are under 10 months now and the Green and Gold Army will be there with the Socceroos, Michael assures me. So make sure you've signed up to the mailing list at gjatravel.com.au for all info on the tour as it comes to hand. Plenty of action to get to this week, so let's get stuck in. Arsenal remain top of the FA Women's Super League after Sam Kerr spurned a golden opportunity for Chelsea in their top-of-the-table nil-all draw. Kerr, Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley all played full matches. So the wash up there, Michael, is that Arsenal lead by two points, but Chelsea have a game in hand. Emily Gelnick was on the score sheet for Aston Villa in their 2-0 win over Everton, which sees the Villa consolidate ninth spot. And in Manchester, Alana Kennedy and Hayley Rassler were both involved as Man City enjoyed a derby win over United 1-0. City have made up ground on fifth. While over in France, Ellie Carpenter played 75 minutes as top of the table Lyon defeated Soyo 8-0. And in Italy, Joe Montemuro's Juventus rode their luck but remained undefeated after a 1-0 win over Hellas Verona. Rob, they were down to 10 players, 10 women. The goal was an own goal, uh, but they'll take the three points and move on. Just before we go through the Socceroos and just while we're wrapping up the women's stuff I just wanted to have a special shout out to Perth Glory A-League women's coach Alex Aparkas who has been uh, extended his contract by a year he's doing such a good job so we just wanted to give him a bit of a shout out and say well done Uh, he's been away from home um, not played any home games despite the fact that the AFL women have been granted exemption to play in Perth what about our uh, Perth Glory A-League men and women getting a Guernsey to play in Perth, Willem? Do you reckon they should be able to do that? Absolutely, for sure. And well yeah. done to Alex. Uh, you've, you've jumped the run sheet, but that's all right. It's oh, all good stuff. And it's all got to get in there at some point. It's just a shout-out. To the Socceroos, debuts at new clubs this week for Riley McGree and Alma Bill, which is, of course, important for the Socceroos ahead of their next assignments. McGree came off the bench for the last 25 of Middlesbrough's, 
Middlesbrough's 4-1 win over Derby. Also a debut for Al Mabil off the bench in the second half for his new Turkish side, Kasim Pasa. Uh, he came on facing a 1-0 deficit and they finished up 2-all. So they sit 14th. No room for mucking around in Turkey. They relegate the bottom four. And that's where Aziz Bayic's Giresunspor sit. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? It's four it, teams it's getting Four of 20 going down. Uh, so they're in the relegation zone after a loss to uh, Fernabachi. And another we don't speak about, or another I don't speak about enough, is Anthony Kalik uh, with HNK Gorica mm. in Croatia. Uh, he's been there for some time, putting together some consistent football. He was on the score sheet against Dinamo Zagreb in a 2-1 loss. So uh, he's one that Arnie will know from his time at Sydney FC. So maybe there's a reason why... Uh, why he doesn't have him in and around the Socceroos squads, but certainly a, a good level. I've got one for you. Young Gun Elu Kual, who we obviously know from Central Coast Mariners' uh, feats last season, has been loaned to Bundesliga two-side Soundhausen uh, from Stuttgart, where he scored seven goals in 18 games for their under-23 side. So you'll get some senior football. I do believe he's a future Socceroo for sure. And uh, good luck to the Young Gun who's making his way in Europe. That's a very good decision, and he'll get some football and maybe play against Jackson at some point. And we're going to have another stack of Aussies in action over the next little while because the J-League kicks off on Friday. So there's three Aussies in the top division from the outset. Kevin Musket as manager of Yokohama F. Marinos, we know, will be taking them into his first full season in charge. Mitch Langerak goes again with Nagoya Grampus. We know he's got an outstanding record in goals there. And Adam Taggart needs to start finding the net for Saruzo Osaka, or they may be looking for another striker. In the J-2, a lot's expected of Pete Klamowski. He's had his first pre-season with Montedeo Yamagata, so a lot expected there and Mitch Duke uh, at Okiyama and Thomas Deng uh, at Niigata. Deng sort of went off the boil a bit with Uru Red's injury left out so hopefully he can re-kickstart his career uh, and go again in Japan there and the K-League as well four Aussies starting the season Alex Grant at Pohang Harrison Delbridge at Incheon Lockie Jackson at Suwon and Ben Halloran gets started with FC Seoul. So how do you think Ben Halloran's going to go? He's probably the one there who stands out uh, as having another couple of levels to his career uh, playing abroad now despite the fact he is 29. Well, FC Seoul is the glamour club of the Korean football. There's some probably stronger teams in terms of results, but it's the glamour club. It's the big club in Seoul that they love. It's the Urua of Korean football. So he, the pressure will be on him to deliver, as is any foreigner in, uh, in one of those key clubs. Uh, they expect them to get him over the line, Willem, more, than, more often than not. Before we get on to the A-League men's and women's competition, I just want to mention, Rob, the Victorian and South Australian NPL seasons kick off this weekend. 12-team South Australian top tier begins with reigning champions Adelaide City hosting Campbelltown City on Friday. Uh, they play a 22-round regular season and we go until mid-August. Uh, and the Victorian NPL, after two seasons ruined by COVID-19, uh, begins on Thursday night. And there's a new streaming service, NPL TV, NPL.TV. Uh, they're going to bring together 600 matches, including the men's, women's, under-21s, Doherty Cup and Nike Cup as well, Rob. So more visibility for the NPL. It's great to see the NPL back. And and look, you know, we've got to um, you know acknowledge when we see these poor crowds in the A League, uh, the the fact that we know that these clubs uh, that uh, exist at that second tier level around the country have got you know long term passionate supporters. We've talked about it for so long. I mean, you know, if we can't... not only that, Rob, they have the food of the of the ethnic communities that support them. I've been on a diet because I'm going to do around the grounds. I'm going to come every Thursday and let you know. Uh, about the Savlakia at South Melbourne or the Shavapi down at uh, Melbourne Knights. Let's have a look at the A-League women's. It's been a massive week. Uh, 21 goals across the five games and Wellington broke the duck and did so in style against Cambria United. 3-0. It was their 11th time out uh, and just reward for their toil, really. I mean, starting a new club away from home. Uh, it's a pretty young squad. Uh, you that don't was a good result. You don't want to go winless. So to have a win is pretty important. 
Absolutely, but you didn't want to be the first team to lose against me, either, did you? So uh, Canberra, uh, that was not a good result for Canberra. But uh, Adelaide, they eight goals against Brisbane. Fiona Wirtz, five goals. Yeah, and three to Chelsea Dorber. So they're now a, a full three points clear of Perth Glory in fourth. They're going to go right to the line for that fourth position. But Adelaide in the box seat uh, currently. Not sure what's going on at Brisbane. The big blue you mentioned uh, midweek. Catherine Zimmerman pulled a goal back late and pulled back two points. Uh, so that was a draw between Melbourne and Sydney. And Good standard really game. The victory, Good standard game. Yep. Uh, the victory have helped Melbourne City, if anything, because they're more in contention for the plate. They're a couple of points. I think they're seven points behind, but they do have a game in hand. So they've yeah, really helped City. That's right. Melbourne City plays Sydney on Sunday at, at uh, Kingston Heath. So uh, that's a big game for Melbourne City. Uh, they'll be tested in that for sure. Uh, Sydney, for me, were, were great value on Wednesday night at uh, Caroline Springs. They really probably should have uh, had the game done and dusted uh, midway through the second half. But they left the door ajar. And you do that, you cop a, uh, a hiding from time to time. And two late goals to Melbourne Victory got them uh, back to equal. It was a, a good game, very high standard, uh, very fast game on a fantastic surface. So uh, looking forward to when those teams meet again in the finals. And a team that haven't been good value, Rob, is Western Sydney. They've been hit for 10, 5-0 to the victory and 5-0 to Canberra. Canberra coming off that uh, chastening loss to Wellington. So if there's one thing you can say about the Wanderers, they're consistent across their men's and women's programs at the moment. Now, Rob, you've got a few connections up at the Wanderers. I know your brother... Pat goes to as many games as you can. It just seems like they are meandering through the season, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it's um, it, it must be heartbreaking for everyone uh, at uh, Parramatta after you know the the wonderful start they had to the competition. I mean, we all know how uh, the crowd dissipated when they became the literal wanderers when the. Uh, when the stadium was being rebuilt, and uh, and then they obviously lost their form, and uh, and and the crowds just haven't come back. So, uh, look, the, I think the only thing that we can uh, hope for, for the Wanderers' sake, is that uh, you know if they get on some winning form, get some good results, gradually bring those people back, like we've seen with the victory in the you know during the uh, the run to the FFA Cup, that the crowds will come back. They're out there, and uh, you know nothing like a winner for uh, for the fans to come back. So, but we'll discuss that more at a later date. We might get uh, somebody on from the Wanderers real soon. Okay, look, boys, let's wrap it up there. We've got uh, Liam Toomey from The Athletic on after the break. Chelsea, uh, they've won the World Club Championship. That sort of com- completes the set for Raman Abramovich, uh, uh, as, as, as um, Thomas Tuchel has, has uh, you know, rebuilt that club. So, yeah, looking forward to a chat to Liam next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And of course, we're always grateful when our friends from The Athletic join us, the best in the business, journalism-wise. And this week, Chelsea won their first club World Cup title with a 2-1 win over Brazilian side Palmeiras. After their extra time win in Abu Dhabi, when Kai Havertz converted from the spot to seal the victory for Thomas Tuchel's men, now that means under Roman Abramovich, Chelsea have won every possible trophy to complete the set. And we welcome Liam Timmy from the Athletic. How are you, Liam? Yeah, I'm good. Pleasure to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you, mate. Uh, and of course, we'll have asked the obligatory Sam Kerr question as well. But uh, this is, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a, a story for the ages, for the history books. Uh, uh, you know, Roman Abramovich, love him or hate him. Uh, if you're a Chelsea fan, uh, um, 
you uh, you've got to be grateful for, for what he's brought to the club. Uh, yes, there are lots of discussions around his motivation for joining uh, the uh, the ownership ranks of the Premier League, um, and uh, you know we've discussed those, and we might park those for another day. But uh, but there can be no question that under the brutal uh, management regime that he employs, i.e., win or you get sacked, um, he's brought incredible success to the club. Yeah, I mean he's he's not been a perfect owner, but I think he's in the grand scheme he's been you know, as as good an owner as any club could hope for, um, just in terms of the consistent willingness to spend, the total unwillingness to accept second best. Um, you know, there, there was kind of a little stretch in the middle of the Abramovich era, probably, you know, around the 2008 to 2012 cycle where the, the spending was scaled back a little bit. But... Um, you know he he's consistently invested big, and and of course we've seen that ultimately with the construction of this latest team, um, and it's enabled Chelsea to consistently compete at the, at the very highest level. And they've, while while you might say that the the managerial instability has probably been partly responsible for the fact that there are only five league titles and not more, um the fact that they've pretty much had a trophy to celebrate every single season is is v- remarkable and um and it's been a it's just been a wild ride for supporters and i think one that they've really enjoyed where does this club world cup kind of rank i mean obviously it seems it seems important to complete the set as we've said before i think it as england particularly in england these kinds of tournaments aren't highly regarded because of the nature of the way you have to qualify for them. But around Europe, it's pretty highly regarded and, and you can't tell Palmeiras it wasn't important. Where, where does it sit and how does that debate play out? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't think it's the hardest competition to win, but it's probably the hardest to qualify for. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that that kind of makes it an unusual one um, within the within the grand scheme of world football. I think, it, you know, it, it's not taken as seriously as perhaps it might be in in England, but you quite rightly say everywhere else in Europe and certainly around the world, and particularly in South America, who you know often generate the opponents um, for the Club World Cup final, it is deadly serious. You know, it is bigger than the Champions League final, um, and I think you could see that in the way that Palmeiras approached the game. You know, they they approached it as if it was the biggest game of their careers and they, they did their best to frustrate Chelsea to that. I think they had a smart game plan that they stuck to and were really committed. And it was just kind of an, a mistake, a handball and, you know, Chelsea just managed to squeeze past them in the end, but they, they knew they'd been in a game and they'd had to really work for it. And from Chelsea's perspective, it's, you know, it, it, I think the champions league trophies are bigger premier league trophies probably, Certainly, the the first couple that they won under Jose Mourinho, I think, mean an awful lot, um, just because of where the club was at that point in time. But this is significant in a different way, in just that it completes the set, um, and I think it it further solidifies Chelsea as as one of the most successful clubs of the last twenty or so years, and and a genuine European elite club. One player that individually has completed the set, I believe, is uh, the club captain, Cesar Aspilicueta. He had a an interesting role in uh, the penalty and the build-up to uh, Kai Havertz's winning goal. Uh, for those that didn't watch the game, could you 
maybe describe this particular piece of cunning shithousery? Yeah, I, th I thought it was genius, actually. I'd never seen it happen in a big game, although my, my athletic colleague, Michael Cox, has since flagged up um, a section in his book in which apparently Robert Perez did it um, many years ago. But it, essentially what Aspilicueta did was, was when the penalty was awarded, um, he grabbed the ball and stood at the penalty spot, you know, to all intensive purposes, as if he was preparing to take the penalty himself. And not only did this trick work on the Palmerish players um, who proceeded to, you know, swarm him, try to get in his head, delay the delay the kick as, in every way they possibly could. It also fooled me because <laughs> I've seen Azpilicueta take and score penalties in shootouts before. So I just assumed that he was going to step up in that moment. Um, but it, he didn't. It was a fake out. Um, and what he was actually doing was absorbing all of Palmerish's distraction attempts um, and in allowing Kai Havertz, who was always the intended penalty taker, a few yards behind him to, to mentally prepare for what was a crucially important kick in, in peace. And, um, you know, we'll never know exactly, you know, how significant that was. We don't know whether Havertz would have missed if he'd been subjected to what Palmeiras were, were trying to do to us, Pilaqueta, but there was no doubt that it was a, a crucial penalty, a crucial time. If if Chelsea had missed it, it was an absolute definite penalty shootout. They would have gone into that shootout with or probably on the on the back foot psychologically. Um and I, th I just thought it was a really heady captain's play from Aspilaqueta that to have the presence of mind to do that in in that moment, um, full in the knowledge that your teammate might you know might need that that little bit of weight lifted on him. I thought it was a really impressive thing to do and brilliantly executed. Obviously, uh, Tuchel was very clear in where to point his praise. We mentioned Roman Abramovich before, and he and he he said that this one was for the uh, for the owner. You feel like there was a little bit of uh, politics, and uh, you know, uh, sort of there from from Thomas. Realistically, this this has probably bought him a bit of a breather. You know, it hasn't been the the best domestic campaign in the Premier League, falling behind uh, Manchester City and Liverpool to a lesser extent. Uh, what does what do you think he needs to do to guarantee that he's still in this job next season? Well, I think in the short term he has to he has to continue to compete for trophies. I mean, he's made the final of every cup competition he's entered so far as Chelsea coach, which is a pretty good record. If he can if he can maintain that kind of standard with the um, with the FA Cup and Champions League in the next few months, and of course, you know, maybe beat Liverpool in the in the Carabao Cup final, then that can only help. Of course, it, it only helped him that Abramovich was there in person to see the Club World Cup. Um, triumph. I think that was probably the first time since Porto that Tuchel has had a chance to talk to Abramovich face-to-face. -face. And in the long term, he has to build a team that can challenge Man City for the Premier League. Do you think Lukaku can work out there? Is there a game there that Tuchel and the rest of the team can work with? Or, you know, did, did Chelsea buy a name and, and in reality, this isn't the right player to fit in their system? It's not a clean fit with the system that Chelsea played last year, but Chelsea knew that and Tuchel knew that. Um, you know, he's he said kind of both in, in sort of press conference settings and, and sort of behind the scenes this year that, that Chelsea went into the Lukaku um, 
business as it were you know with their eyes wide open in terms of how it would require them to maybe tweak their style on the pitch and how there would be an, an adaptation process but they were prepared to do that because last season the they kind of won the Champions League in spite of their attack and in spite of not having a reliable goal scorer. And so they, you know, the first choice was Erling Haaland, but primarily they wanted a goal scorer that could come in and just tick that box. Um, and Lukaku has been one of the most reliable in Europe at that over the last decade. So I think it can work um, in spite of everything that's happened. It's It's clearly not been... It's pretty much been the worst possible um, start so far this season, both in terms of you know how how it's kind of yeah how how it's been difficult on the pitch, but also the interview um, and just the the kind of general reports of disgruntlement now. Um, but I, I you know I still think Tuchel can figure it out. It doesn't help that the that the combination of forwards around Lukaku have changed a lot. There hasn't been any consistency there either. I think he, he's looked better recently when when Kai Havertz has been alongside him. And I think that's a combination that Abramovich, as much as Tuchel, would probably be keen to explore because those are the two most expensive attacking players he's ever bought. Um, there, there's plenty enough talent to make this work and make it work at a level that allows Chelsea to achieve their objectives that... The, the question is, um, you know, how, how does Lukaku feel at Chelsea at the end of this season? Um, and I think what happens in the next sort of two or three months will go a long way towards determining that. More broadly in the Premier League, Liam, uh, beyond Chelsea, you'd sort of think that uh, even though they've got a game in hand on City on 47 points, they're probably just a little too far away uh, to, to mount any reasonable challenge, although they're still... Uh, you know, 36 points left for, for the asking. The team that does have a chance mathematically of running City down is, of course, Liverpool, who've got also that game in hand. Uh, even though they're nine points behind City, um, let's assume they win the game they have in hand. Then there is the head-to-head against City at some point. And, uh, and then those of us and anyone who listens to this show know I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm probably starting to assume they know why uh, I'm asking this question. But do you think um, City uh, are going to, um, to maintain their momentum? We saw their, you know, imperious, to use Derek's word, uh, winning the uh, the Champions League, but Liverpool are on a, a, a red-hot streak as well. Do, do you expect that we're going to see a, a genuine title race towards the end, uh, which would obviously require uh, Liverpool to beat Manchester City and City to stumble against at least one of their remaining opponents? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I do see Manchester City dropping points between now and the end of the season because, contrary to the way it can look at times, they're not they're not actually a machine. Um, they are human. They won't win it. They won't win every single one of their final thirteen games. But I don't see them dropping enough points. And you know, we've seen this with Guardiola teams before. They they accumulate league points at a rate that is pretty much unprecedented in in the modern history of European football. Um, And, you know, I I just think with the inbuilt advantage they've got, it doesn't help Liverpool that City have already played Chelsea twice. So that's, you know, one of the most difficult head-to-heads out of City's way. Um, 
I'm sure they've got other tricky fixtures, but I just don't think there's there's enough there. It would take the kind of collapse that we haven't seen from a Guardiola team in a front-running position. They're, they're very, very good at closing these situations out. So I, I can see Liverpool's focus from here and Chelsea, certainly, um, being on the Champions League and, you know, that the competition that they can still win, the competition that they, they would still absolutely fancy themselves to, you know, to maybe edge out City over a two-legged tie or, or a one-off final, as Chelsea did last year. Um, but it, over the course of a league format, Guardiola's teams are just so strong. And, and when you give them a nine nine point advantage or double digit lead it's it's very very difficult to haul that back in jumping back to to Chelsea though and obviously I mentioned Sam Kerr off the top but uh, the women's uh, Super League has only got uh, around six um, match days to go Uh, Chelsea just two points off Arsenal but with the game in hand as well so ostensibly they win that game they're on top Uh, uh, what are your expectations around the uh, the women's Super League in the run home and uh, you know Sam Kerr obviously returned to to the club after you know a disappointing Asian um, uh, uh, women's uh, uh, cup uh, 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 outing where uh, she unfortunately was um, one of the uh, um, the main um, causes of Australia getting knocked out as they did. It's obviously been a less um, enjoyable little stretch for Sam Kerr, but she's having an amazing season for Chelsea. Um, so I think that will be probably what she carries back with her. She's still the top scorer in the in the WSL despite the the, the time that she's taken away from from the domestic campaign. Um, and Chelsea are getting her back at the most crucial stage of the season. You know, the, the, this this looks to be you know a fantastic title race. It always seems to be close in the WSL. I think maybe because of the shortened season, um, the the margin for error for the top teams is just is just razor thin. Um, and I think it's been slightly more exciting because. Arsenal have have drawn four games and and lost one. Chelsea, you know, have, have slipped up more times than you would have expected. Um, so I think it, it's really kind of opened it up. Uh, but fundamentally, Chelsea know that if they win all of their games, they'll be they'll be champions, um, and and that gives them the, the advantage. That is that is where they want to be. Yes, it's pressure because they are still chasing Arsenal, but these are the kind of situations they want and. And particularly with, you know, the Champions League gone for them as a target for another for another season, I think Emma Hayes and her squad um, will be entirely focused on this, on trying to retain the WSL. And and that at the end of what's been quite a difficult kind of bit of a roller coaster campaign, um, I, th- I think they they'd see it as the kind of the bare minimum to sort of salvage the season. Well, Liam, thank you very much for your time, mate. We're always grateful for the uh, the time you do give us. Uh, mate, enjoy the rest of both the men's and women's uh, seasons over there. And, uh, mate, um, we'll all look ahead to the World Cup, mate. It'll be here before we know it. And um, and England might just uh, go in as one of the... Uh, you know the uh, the favourites. Um, if uh, if form from the European Cup's got anything to to go by, yeah, it'll be fun to watch. Um, it feels like every single tournament's getting bigger and bigger as well on the on the global stage. So mm. yeah, I'll be paying close attention, and yeah, and hopefully um, England can produce a, a strong showing. Hopefully Australia can actually get there, mate. So we'll be <laughs> you guys. Hey Liam, thanks again for your time, mate. You have a great day, and and we'll look forward to talking to you again real soon. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Box to box. Can you believe it? <laughs>
For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This has been a fun show so far. This is Box to Box and this is stoppage time. We've got about 15 minutes or so and there's plenty to get through. But uh, before we get stuck into the... Uh, the bits and pieces of the news we've got to sort of wrap up on Champions League boys. So Derek, um, what what have you made of uh, of the matches you've seen so far? I think each of the games that we've seen so far, the the four of them, have, there's been a narrative. I I do wonder why they've split up the round of sixteen like this. Why why don't they just have them all in the in the same time? And of course, I suppose they want to maximise television income and, and maximise the number of eyeballs on, on these games. But Manchester City, they're basically through. I'm sorry, Sporting Lisbon. I'd you know, I just don't see how they're going to come back from from five goals. Absolutely imperious. And I think yeah, are City boring to watch. I've heard this one going around. They're just they're so clinical. They make the game look so easy. There's no jeopardy when they play. Uh, uh Rob are City boring? You say that at your peril, don't you? Because obviously fans of, uh, of City would, uh, you know, uh, shut you down. But, uh, uh, yeah, clinical. Uh, I mean, the question is these Galactico-type teams that are just full of superstars and then managed by, a, uh, you know, almost a generational um, manager in, in so far as his brilliance and the fact that tactically he's uh, he seems to be one step ahead of, of, of many of his competitors. So, you know, I don't follow City. Um, I don't like to watch them win. I watch games hmm. hoping that they will lose and hoping that they will have uh, points taken off them. So when they win, yes, I agree. I find it um, pretty boring. <laughs> Derek, can I please have a goal in there? Uh, a word in there for Bernardo Silva's goal. Uh, one of two sure. brilliant goals scored. Uh, Sterling was the other one, but we know Sterling does that. But for Bernardo Silva, uh, nominally a player of sort of touch and, and grace and and craft with the ball to see him just belt one in uh, was was brilliant for me. Really, I mean, sometimes when players do something out of character like that, it can uh, really put it up in light. So that was the uh, the pick of the two for me, just because it was out of the blue. Certainly was, and a goal that seemed to be coming in the. Uh Kylian Mbappe versus uh, Real Madrid game, and Mbappe got that goal with uh, just a few few minutes left, and that, that put, gives them just the edge in this tie. Uh, Real Madrid, of course, will be looking at the lips of looking their lips at the prospect of Kylian Mbappe coming back to play for them at some point. And but the headline maybe is Lionel Messi. He's missed another penalty. It wasn't wasn't a good one. He kind of kept it low, kept it quite close to the keeper. He has now converted, uh, first convert five of 25, champ, 20, uh, 23 Champions League penalty attempts so far. He's the best player in the world, isn't he, Edge? But he can't take penalties. Now, he's had a checkered pass with penalties, hasn't he? So, yeah, I don't know why he does take them. And obviously, by Munich. Now, there's jeopardy in this game. And Munich, of course, are not in the best form. They had this amazing defeat in Bundesliga, 4-2 to Bochum, uh, to the bottom of the league. So they lost the bottom of the league. And it took a late goal from Kingsley Coman to, to, to rescue a point in Salzburg. Of course, Bayern will, will back themselves to win back at the Allianz Arena, but they're not used to uh, losing to to teams of uh, like Salzburg, and uh, you know they're still in the driving seat, but one to watch there. And of course, we all know Liverpool uh, scored their two late goals to to get through. Probably the the biggest one there uh, from a Liverpool point of view is the injury to Jota. That that will be a um, that will be a blow because he's been in fantastic form and 
looking ahead to next week, Chelsea will will play Lille. Of course, we've already spoken about the prospects for that game earlier with Liam. Uh, Real will uh, will play Juventus. So Juventus are going away there to the yellow submarine. Atletico Madrid and Manchester United probably looks the pick of those four games. Uh, what do you think, Edge? I mean, is this a good opportunity for uh, Atletico to, to uh, put something on the board there? I think it is, yeah. I think they will view that as well. So expect them to, you know, prepare appropriately. But it's a big opportunity for Atletico, no doubt about it. Well, then we'll, we'll draw on your uh, Dutch heritage for the last one, uh, Benfica and Ajax. Ajax sort of, uh, after after a couple of years of, of their team being pillaged of their best players of showing some good form again in this tournament. How do you see them going against Benfica? They should go all right against Benfica. You're right, Derek. They are a club uh, who draw on the sort of youth academy, the strong foundations there, and, and do regenerate. So uh, they should go all right. And also a word for the rivals PSG as well, who are playing in the in the conference league. So I'll have, I'll have a closer eye on that one. Uh, but yeah, certainly the Dutch representation from Ajax uh, will be good. We know they can go deep in this tournament. Let's move away from the uh, the Champions League. I just wanted to bring up, this is a subject that we've debated a few times on this show, and FIFA Pro, the, uh, the sort of world players union body, uh, they've they've surveyed uh, a thousand players across six continents and asked a simple question, do you want the World Cup to remain every four years uh, and 75% of male players? So I should underline the word male there, said that they would like would like that to, to happen. It's not a, a good endorsement of, of the initiative. Uh, but Ed, you know, we know you're very pro this initiative. Uh, do you see this kind of stuff concerning uh, Gianni and his plans? Yeah, it's like those polls on preferred prime minister. There's polls that matter. And there's polls that don't. Staying with international football, uh, we'll all rec- we all recall talking about that game between Argentina and Brazil from uh, earlier in the year where Argentina's players sort of effectively stepped around COVID protocol to, to get onto the pitch against Brazil. And of course, the game was uh, abandoned and three of those players coming from the Premier League, including the likes of Emi Martinez, uh, the... Uh, the Aston Villa goalkeeper, but they've all been banned now by FIFA uh, for for doing that. So that kind of, I suppose, clears that one up a little bit. But speaking of Brazil, you can't talk about Brazilian football edge without talking about Pele. So what have you got on that? Well, it's been nearly 45 years since Pele played his last match. I was only five at the time. Um, So I didn't get to obviously see him in his glory. But um, the Brazilian luminary is still considered by many as the greatest player in the world. And you'd have to say that the market has a way of uh, settling a lot of these debates, doesn't it, Rob? Because the sentiment was reiterated this week when his rookie collector's card became the first football or soccer's uh, uh, rookie card to sell for more than one million US dollars on Monday. Uh, fractional ownership company Rally Road finalised the sale of a 1958 Palais rookie card in almost print mint condition for 1.33 million US dollars. Edge, just tell us about your Philippine story. Absolutely. Remember, <laughs> well, we know the, the, the great triumph that Philippines qualifying for the first Women's World Cup was. Um, but they've run into a bit of trouble on social media with some Filipino uh, hardcore nationalists saying that their mixed American heritage meant that they weren't Filipino enough. Uh, and a couple of quotes stood out to me. Uh, US-based Kiara Fontanella said, we're all Filipino, there's no such thing as we're not Filipino enough. I think people that are saying that are wrong, we're here to make a difference. And 
Olivia McDaniel. Now, that is a very Filipino name, Olivia McDaniel, uh, whose penalty shootout kick against Taiwan gave the Filipinos their first berth at the Women's World Cup, said the questions hurt her and stressed the Filipino-American players were certain of their identity as Filipinas. Too right, I say, Olivia. Olivia McDaniel, there's not enough McDaniels in the Philippines. So those people that are lining her up and saying she's not Filipina enough. Her mum is obviously a Filipina. And that uh, begs the question, Rob, is it Filipino or Filipina? What do you reckon it no, is, Rob? No, 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 it is Filipina. Um, That's right, it is a Filipina. Filipino is the wrong way to call that. Yeah. And what is the currency? Oh, that's the a good one. peso. The got peso. You, back. you got me one back. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a bit like the uh, the McAllister family who play in Argentina. That's right, the McAllister family that play in Argentina. So uh, I just thought Olivia McDaniel was uh, quite obviously she's Filipino. Keeping things with the women's football edge, we have got a bit of a link here. You've also got a story, not, not a good one, about the Canadian women's uh, team. What's going on there? Well, we're great supporters of the women's game. We think it's where um, there's a massive amount of growth to come for our sport and we love the women who take centre stage. So we need to call out bad behaviour, abhorrent behaviour and people that are completely uh, outrageous in their behaviour. And the former under-20 Canadian women's soccer coach, Bob Baranda, uh, you're the latest one to be called out, brother. He's entered guilty pleas in the court in North Vancouver last week to charges spanning from 1988 to 2006 involving four separate victims. Uh, Barada was sent, uh, will be sentenced later this year after a, uh, a pair of court-ordered reports were prepared to assess his future risk of offending. So that is big news in Canada because he is a big profile, a very successful Canadian football um, personality, and uh, he'll be going away to the big house, and rightly so. And Willem, let's just wrapping up this uh, this uh, stoppage time. I can see the referee looking at his watch. In this case, Rob. Um, is he some exciting referees. Is, is he, he one uh, of the referees? Zambian? Yeah, he's, he's got his <laughs> He might make a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Willem, some some big news about a upcoming um, Middle Eastern tour for Manchester United. Tell us about it. Yes, uh, Syria. They're not going so well in the uh, third round of AFC World Cup. No, no, we want to talk about the Syria, Derek, the Syria. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was worth a mention because of the top five European leagues, it's clearly the most interesting this season. And we know outside of the Premier League here in Australia, it's probably the most followed European league. I think uh, so. With the Italian... Especially the around the wrist table between Damo and Roberto. So let's just have a look at the top of the table. The two Milan clubs leading the line. AC on 55 points, Inter on 54, but with a game in hand. Then Napoli on 53, and... And then in the race for fourth, Juventus, Atalanta, Lazio and Roma, uh, just the six points splits them. And we know that there's also points there for the Europa League and for the Conference League. So that was just a, uh, a shout out to our friend Guido, who we know is listening and doesn't yep. get enough Serie A content on this show, Derek. So that is definitely going to be the most interesting title race, uh, title race leading into the end of the season. And I also wanted a word for Manchester United. I think Ralph Rangnick has been exposed as a bit of a fraud. We were told that this guy was some sort of genius, only coming in on an interim basis. But Having said that, they're, they're, they're currently in fourth spot on the ladder. Having watched them over the past week against Southampton, a one-all draw, and then 
Brighton, a 2-0 win. Very fortunate in the second half. Uh, I don't think anything's particularly changed, Eric, after the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sacking. And yes, he is only the interim boss, so you could say how, how much can you actually change. But he's been nicknamed among the players as Ted Lasso, apparently. Uh, doesn't shake things up too much. So <laughs> I think they're just coasting through until the end of the season. Are they, where are they in the letter? Can you please check on the letter where they are, oh, please? They scooted up to fourth, but they, they are very scooted up poor to fourth. against Brighton. Everybody is poor. on Manchester United's back. They're up to fourth. What happens when they finish in the top four and qualify for Champions League again? Man City. No, they're not, they're not the going to do, do that, Edge, because Arsenal like, uh, right. have got about about a million yeah, games in good in hand. We're playing about once every uh, once every month at the moment, which is our which is our problem. Uh, but but yeah, look, it hasn't been it's been underwhelming to say the least. But at the same time, as Willem said, you know what kind of what kind of job do you expect someone to do on a temporary basis? There's clearly enormous problems inside the squad. I don't think there's good influences in that squad and, you know, the fact that they're already kind of taking the Michael out of this guy, calling him Ted Lasso just tells you everything that you want to know. And if I was uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I'd be uh, looking at that and going, well, I was doing a similar job and, you know, I, I, I was getting plenty of criticism for that. Hey, um, we know we talk, I, I talk about money a little bit on this program. I'm going to do it again just for a moment. The Premier League TV revenue has exceeded £10 billion. This is the international broadcast revenue for the first time ever after some historic uh, deals were uh, clinched with broadcasters, mainly in the USA and South America. Um, so just the, re- the, the knock-on effect of that is that, remember, the deal was done with the Big Six to incentivise the international broadcast rights to drop into the merit payments. So the knock-on effect will mean that um, there's an extravagant amount of cash is going to be distributed through prize money based on where you finish on the ladder. The winner... £176 million bonus on top of your TV rights, if you don't mind, brother. That's obviously going to Manchester City, not Liverpool this year. And last place, last place, £100 million. Last place in the Premier League. That's not a bad little uh, kicker as you get relegated down to the Championship on top of your parachute payment. It's not. And speaking of Championship, there's a fellow that we need to draft back onto the show. We've got to get Dino back to talk about Derby. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. we've got to get John Beckett on the phone to talk about Nottingham. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, aren't they going to what after that? Let's get Dino back. Back up. Well, we will. We'll get Dino back. But you know what we've got to do, boys? We've got to wrap it up here because the fourth official has uh, called out the referee and said, mate, you are going way over time. He's not a, um, a referee from AFCON who's calling it early. We're calling it too late. So... Edge, welcome back to Australia. Um, it's great to have you back home. I'm it is sure. good to be back. It is good to be your back. Your family already, like Philippa and the girls, are they, um, you know, already sort of saying, Michael, when are you heading off for your next trip after three days? Or uh, Yeah, my daughter's uh, saying to me, uh, get on the plane, Dad, go away again, please. <laughs> I'm sure they love having you back. Uh, Willem, well done. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Derek. Michael Damo. Derek, thank you. Always a pleasure. And Damo, I know you haven't got a mic in front of you, but thank you yet again for doing such a wonderful job. And thank you, dear listeners. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. We always ask you, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.